Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 this morning. And this is a text that comes at the end of the Christmas story, as we might call it. Uh, the end of uh, the passages that deal with Christ's birth. And uh, this is not a Christmas message. I will uh, let you know that. We're still in August, so no reason to rush that season. But uh, a great truth is found here uh, in this passage that I want to consider today. Luke chapter 2, and starting with verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This is the first time of many times in the New Testament when people marveled at something Jesus said or something that Jesus did. There were countless times throughout Scripture where Jesus would say something or he would do something, and people marveled. Uh, For example, in in John chapter 7 and verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man these things, having never learned? In other words, they were marveling that here was a man that had never gone to their institutions of learning. He had never been to their schools to teach the Old Testament. And yet Jesus seemed to know that book like like the back of his hand, we would say. They marveled that he had this knowledge of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? They marveled that Jesus had the power to raise his hand and still the storms or stop the wind. They they marveled that he had this control over the natural forces around him. In, in, In Matthew chapter 9, verse 33, when the devil was cast out, the devil spake and the multitudes marveled, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. They had never seen anyone command the underground world, the demons and the devils, and yet Jesus was able to do so, and it caused them to marvel. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus answering said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. And they marveled at his saying. I marvel when I have to pay taxes too, don't you? (laughs) And yet Jesus was giving honor to God, but he was giving honor to the government that he had ordained. In John chapter 4, you know the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus uh, is talking with her there. The disciples had gone into the city to buy meat. And and when they returned, they marveled that he talked with the woman. Why? Because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And they marveled that he was talking to this lowly woman here at the well. As Jesus stood before Pilate in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, Pilate is bombarding Jesus with questions, but Jesus chose not to answer. 
And the Bible says Pilate marveled at him. Time after time, Jesus would say something or do something that caused people to marvel. Now, the word marvel means to be awed, to be overwhelmed, to be struck with wonder, to be amazed, to be staggered, to be astonished. And it's a given that we, as finite human beings, would marvel at an infinite God. These songs that we sang this morning, and we think about God's holiness and God's power and His omnipresence and all of these attributes of God, it causes us as finite human beings to marvel at the great God who exists. When we think about our salvation, we ought to marvel that God would save a sinner like us. We think about God's presence and so on, and we ought to marvel that God cares about our life. We ought to take some time, even this week, to marvel at God. But does God ever marvel at people? Is God ever awestruck when he looks at my life? Does God ever go, whoa, look at that. There are two times in the New Testament when Jesus marveled at people. The first one is in Mark chapter 6. I invite you to go there because in this passage, Jesus marveled at their skeptical fear. Mark chapter 6, let's read a little bit starting in verse number 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marvels at their skeptical fear. It's interesting, they were marveling in verse 2 at the words that he spoke. In the latter part of verse 2, they were, they were marveling at the, at, at the works that he was doing. They, they, they couldn't understand how he was speaking these things, how he was doing these things. And isn't it interesting that everything that the Old Testament prophets had said about Jesus, everything that they said he would say and that he would do, Jesus was now saying and doing. And yet, they said, this isn't the Messiah. There's no way. This is the carpenter. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. This is not the Messiah. He was saying, he was doing exactly what the Old Testament had said the coming Messiah would do. And yet, they were living in a skeptical fear. They were hesitant toward God's promises. God had promised the Messiah. He had promised this is what the Messiah will say. This is what the Messiah will do. And now Jesus has arrived. He's saying and doing the very things the Word of God had said. 
and they were skeptical. They were doubting. They were hesitant toward God's promises. Are you hesitant toward any of God's promises in your life? I meet people that are hesitant toward the promise of salvation. I mean, people say, well, it can't be that easy. I mean, to go to heaven, you've you, you got to be a part of a church. You, you've got to do a lot of good things. You, you, you've got to give some money to religion. or you, You've got you to do this and that. It can't be as simple as simply admitting that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on a cross and he died for you. And if you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you can have eternal life. That, that's way too simple. There's no way that that's how you get to heaven. And they're skeptical with respect to the promise of salvation. But what did Jesus say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Are you skeptical? Are you questioning the promise of his salvation. Many people are skeptical toward the promise of God's security. We, we live in a dangerous world. Uh, we live in a world where we could live in a lot of fear. Uh, it, it, is, it is not the kind of world that is exciting to bring up a family in. It, it's not exciting sometimes to go out at night or to a store. And, and, and we might wonder, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be all right? I, I don't know if God can really protect me. I was preaching in Minneapolis, Minnesota during the George Floyd trial. And there was a lady there in Brooklyn Center uh, who lived right across the street from the Brooklyn Center Police Department. And every night, as soon as it would get dark, uh, they would fill that street in front of her house and they would begin to riot, set things on fire and overturn cars and all these kinds of things because that's where the trial was taking place. And we were in the church there just down the street. And this woman, 65 years old, widow lady, she would every night back her car out of the garage, Bible in her hand, drive through all that mess and come to church. And her neighbors were saying, what are you doing? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? You're going to get yourself killed. She said, the house of the Lord's open. I need to go to church. God can protect me. Are we skeptical toward the promise of his security? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Sometimes we become skeptical toward the promise of his strength. We get weary, we get tired, we say, oh, Lord, I, I just, I'm not up to this anymore. I, I don't think I can make it to church. I don't think I can read my Bible today. I, I just can't be the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm just worn out by the time I get home from work. And, and I can't be the, the loving mother I need to be. And I can't be this. And I can't be that. I'm just worn out. Well, wait a minute. God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. He giveth power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. But we, we, we doubt, we question the promise sometimes of his supply. We say, God, have you heard of inflation? 
<laughs> you know, it's getting rough down here. I mean, things are costing so much money and, and I don't know if I can make ends meet. And Lord, what am I going to do? God said in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure glad that God didn't say, my God shall supply all your need out of his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He didn't say that. Because if you supply someone else's need out of what you have, you now have less than you had before. Right? If you said, Brother Gash, could I, could I have $5? Well, uh, maybe I'd have to break this 20, but sure. I'll get some change. I'll give, you, I'll give you your $5. It sounds like you need it. Well, if I did that, I don't have $20 anymore. I've only got 15 If I supply your need out of my riches... I now have less than I had before. But that's not what God said. God said, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When God provides our needs, he doesn't have any less. He's provided our needs according to his riches. He's never going to run out. That's why David could say, I've been young, now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. Sometimes we doubt the promise of God's schedule. We, we read a verse in Psalm 37 where it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, you could think of that word ordered a couple different ways. For example, if you went to the restaurant and you were seated, a waiter or a waitress would come by eventually and would hand you a menu and would say, uh, would you like something to drink? And you'd say, sure, I'll have water, or I'll have iced tea, or I'll have a Coke, or whatever, and she'll go get that. And pretty soon she'll come back with those things to drink, and then she'll say, are you ready to order? At least you hope she comes back and asks you that pretty soon. Are you ready to order? And by that time you are, you've looked at the menu, and you've decided what you want, and so you place an order. Okay. Now, you could look at this verse, Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Did you know that God placed an order for your life before you were even born? He said to Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's belly, when I was forming you, I knew you. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God already put in the order for Jeremiah's life. Paul said the same thing, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Now, Paul didn't get saved until as an adult later in life. But God already had an order put in for Paul's life that he would one day be a preacher of the gospel. And God has an order already for your life. The psalmist said, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, when I was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. And in thy book all my members were written. See, when you were conceived, by the way, we know so much more now in science. We can see so much more in the womb and, 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 and when, when conception takes place between the sperm and the egg and that zygote is formed, did you know that all of your DNA is in that zygote? 
half, half the chromosomes from your mom, half from your dad. All your DNA is there. And, and that means that your gender is there, your, your eye color is there, your skin color is there, your personality is there, your athletic or non-athletic ability is there. It's already all there. And God, as he's forming that in the womb, he, he, he has designed it and he's already placed an order for your life. He knows what you're, he's going to do with your life. In fact, he has it written in a book. Have you ever been in a restaurant and you put in your order and the waitress went and got it and brought it back and you said, this isn't what I ordered. I, I wanted my eggs scrambled. These look fried. Can you fix this? I wonder if God looks at our lives this morning and he says, that's not what I ordered. Can you fix this? So you can look at this verse in that way, ordered. But order also indicates sequence, does it not? Putting something in order, if you were to put your garage in order, or if you were to put something in alphabetical order, it would mean that you're aligning some things in a sequence. Well, God says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Job said, thou numberest all my steps. When I was in elementary school, sometimes a teacher would uh, walk into classroom after a recess or whatever, and she'd say, all right, boys and girls, take everything off your desk. I don't want to see anything on your desk. Take everything off your desk except for a pencil. And when she would say that, I'd get nervous. I'd think, oh, no, here comes a test. I'm not ready, you know. We'd get everything off the desk, and then she'd pick up a stack of papers, and she'd walk around. She'd put something face down on her desk. And she said, don't turn that over until I tell you. Now panic was really starting to set in. I was starting to get an uneasy feeling here. What is this? What are we doing? And then she'd get them all passed out, and she'd say, okay, turn them over and begin. And I would turn it over, and it was one of those dot-to-dots. Remember those? I love those things had this paper with all these little dots on it and numbers next to the dots. And, and, and you, had to, you had to take your pencil and you, you found the dot with the number one. You put your pencil there. And then you had to look for the dot with number two. And when you found it, you drew a line from number one to number two. And then you found number three and you drew a line to number three. And then to number four. And if you knew how to count, if you knew your numbers in sequence... If you drew all those lines correctly between the numbers, when you got done, it revealed a picture that you hadn't seen before. Now, I don't know how you were. I'm very competitive. And I wanted to be the first one done. I wanted to be the one that announced to the class, it's a rooster. It's a rooster. I, that, that was me. Okay. So, so I, I, boy, I would go at that thing. I'd put my pencil there, one to two, and then two to three, and three to four, and four to five, and five to six. And then I'd look at the girl next to me, and she's like on number 13. And I would panic. i think, oh, no, she's ahead of me. She's going to know before I do. And, and so I would, I would go from 6 to, 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 to 15, and then to 24, and then to 31. And now I'm ahead. But, you know, if you do that, when you get done, it's not a rooster. It's a mess. Isn't this what we do with our lives? 
really interesting. I, I, I enjoy talking to children and, and children. It, it's sort of hard at first to get a conversation going. You have to kind of figure out what they're interested in. And so you, you say, hey, what's your name? And they'll tell you their name, you know, and they're a little even shy about that. And then you'll say, how old are you? And it's really interesting. Children will usually say, I'm almost seven. Or they'll say, I'm almost 10. They're always almost something, Right. They'll say, I'm almost seven. Really? Wow. When will you be, when will you be seven? June. <laughs> you know, it's August, but you know, 10 months to wait, but they're almost seven. But really, if we're honest, we as adults are like that too. We're, we're never happy with this dot we're on. God's got us on number six, but we don't like six. We want to get seven. You know, we, 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 it, it's all through life. A kid wants to be 10. I can't wait to be 10, a double digit. Then, then the kid can't wait to be 13, you know, a teenager. And then he can't wait to be 16 so he can drive a car. Then he can't wait till he's 18 and graduate from high school. And then he can't wait till he goes to college. And then he can't wait till he gets married. And then, then, he, then he can't wait till he has kids. And then he can't wait till the kids leave. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're always looking to the next dot. We're never happy where we are. God says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Our life is ordered in a sequence. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them that are the called according to his purpose. Are we hesitant toward God's promises? Because when we are, those who are hesitant towards God's promises hinder God's power. Did you notice it there? He could there do no mighty work, save a few sick folk that he healed. He he couldn't accomplish what he came there to accomplish. He had come there to do great mighty things, but he couldn't do it. Why? Because of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be sad for God to look at Calvary Baptist Church and say, man, I want to do some great things there. Their 60th anniversary is coming up. Man, I want to bless that week. I want to just pour out my blessing on that week. I want to do some amazing things. I want the testimony of that church to shine like never before in the community. I'm planning to do great. Well, maybe not. There's no faith there. Wouldn't that be sad? For God to intend to do something, but be limited by our unbelief. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings 6 and 7. In chapter 6, there's a horrible famine in Israel. I mean, there is no food. Now, they have money. There was nothing to buy. There was nothing on the shelf. They're starving. You could have a bag full of silver coins, but you couldn't buy anything. There's nothing to buy. So there's this horrible famine. People are dying. They're desperate. And in the chapter 6 there, there's these two women who both have baby boys. And they decide they're going to kill their baby sons, boil them, and eat them. I mean, this is horrible. And so they make a decision between them that that's what they're going to do. So the next day, they took one of these women's sons, little baby boy, They killed him, they boiled him, and they ate him. Well, the next day, the woman whose son had been eaten, she said, okay, today we're eating your son. 
But the other woman hid her son. Well, now there's a little, little disagreement going on here. And, and it comes to the king's ears. And the Bible says the king rent his clothes. I mean, what have we come to? We're eating our own children? What in the world are we going to do? There's this horrible famine, and people are, are, are moving to these desperate means of survival. Well, Elisha, chapter 7, hears about this. He comes to town, hears about it. And he stands up and he says, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow about this time, so within 24 hours, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. So Elisha stands up and says, hang on, folks. God sees our plight. God's got something coming. Just be patient. Tomorrow, within 24 hours, you won't need that bag full of silver coins. You can take the smallest amount of coin you have in your pocket, and you can buy enough food to feed your whole family. Don't worry about it. It's coming. The blessing is coming. Well, the Bible says, then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned. So here's somebody in the, in, the, in the king's cabinet, an advisor, a Lord on whose hand the king leaned, said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, how can this be? He's saying, you are an idiot. You're a fool. That can't happen. Well, you can go home and read the rest of 2 Kings 7. And in verse number 2, Elisha said to that man, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. He said, pal, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat. And the rest of chapter 7 tells the story how the Syrians in a nearby city got discopopulated and they ran for the hills and left everything behind. And the Israelites went in and spoiled their city, and they had a banquet. But verse 20, the people took that Lord on whose hand the king leaned, and they trolled him down in the street that he died as the Lord said. And you know, I would hate to be the person who would say, we can't have revival. And revival would come, but not see it. Wouldn't it be sad to say, well, my loved one's never going to get saved. There's no way. They're too hard. And for it to happen, but not see it. God marvels at their skeptical fear. But turn to Luke chapter 7. Let's see the other occasion where Jesus marveled. And this time, Jesus marvels at a man's superlative faith. Now, the truth is, we're either going to live in faith or fear. And chapter 7, verse 1, notice it. When he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter my roof. 
Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they were they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Nothing arrests the attention of God faster than our faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, Jesus had seen faith prior to Luke chapter 7. He had seen people come to him to be saved. He had seen people come to be healed. Jesus had seen faith before he meets this centurion, before this story is ever written. So what caused him to marvel at this man's faith? I mean, he marvels. This is only the second time in the whole New Testament that Jesus ever marveled. And he's marveling at this man. What would cause him to be awestruck, to be kind of taken back? To be kind of wowed by wonder here. Well, notice his faith was preceded by a curious humility. This centurion's servant is sick. He knows of Jesus, so he sends some friends to go get Jesus to heal his servant. So these friends go and they find Jesus. And Jesus is ministering. And they come to him. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 4. But they said, uh, Lord, uh, there's a need. Please come with us. We know you're busy here. We know you got lots to do here. But this man is worthy. Did you catch that? He's, he's worthy of your attention. He, he's worthy that you come with us. Why? He loves our nation. Now, now put this in the context. This is a Roman centurion. The Romans didn't think too much about Israel. I mean, the Romans and the Jews were always at odds. The Romans were, were oppressing the Jews. They were oppressing Israel, exacting these hard taxes and all the rest. So the Romans were not the friends of the Jews. So they said, Lord, he's worthy. He loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. Now, just think about that for a minute. Suppose after the service, some guy wandered in the back hallway there, and, and uh, he says, uh, is a pastor here? Guy sounds a little angry. No, that, that, that guy right there. So, so he goes over to the pastor. You pastor? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Well, I was just driving by. I've never been in a church. I'm an atheist, actually. But I, uh, looks like you need to do a few repairs around here. Looks like you could spruce this place up a little bit. Looks like your parking lot could use some attention. Maybe some of these buildings... Uh, here's a check for $2 million. Pastor would be like, can we, can we get you lunch or anything? Yeah. That's what this guy did. He built him a church. A Roman centurion has built the Jews a church. They said, Lord, come with us. He's worthy. This guy's got a pretty impressive resume. we got to be careful that we don't ask God for things based on who we are. Sometimes we, we, we base our prayers on, well, now, Lord, I, I went to church this morning. Surely you're going to do some good things this afternoon. 
you know, Lord, I, I, I put my tithe in today. Surely you're going to bless me this week. I, I, I'm about due for a raise, Lord. This would be a great week. And I did tithe, right? Have you ever done that? I think we all do. Maybe at least in our mind, we think, well, God kind of owes me here. You know, Lord, I could have stayed home and watched the game, but I came to church. I'm sure my team is winning by at least three touchdowns by now. <laughs> you know, we kind of think, God, God, you, you need to bl-. be careful because God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knows far off. So we've got to be careful. This man's faith is preceded by a curious humility, but it is also partnered with a confident hope. When we say, boy, I hope we don't get too much rain. I, I hope it doesn't flood. Well, that hope is pretty iffy, right? I mean, it looks like we're going to get some more rain. There's a 100% chance this afternoon. So even if it's only 80%, we're probably going to get some more, right? So our hope, when we say hope, I hope, it's really not based on a lot of substance. But in the Bible, the word hope means a confident expectation. When Paul said, looking for that blessed hope, And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He wasn't saying, boy, I hope the Lord comes back like we hope it doesn't rain too much. He knew the Lord was coming back. A confident expectation. And did you notice in this man, Jesus does leave. He does journey. But the man sends out some servants and says, Lord, no. He doesn't want you to come any further. He's not worthy that you would come under his roof. He, 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 that's why he didn't come out to you. We see the curious humility there. Then he says, just speak the word and he'll be whole. A confident expectation. Does that describe our faith today? We use the word faith, but sometimes faith on paper is a lot different than faith in practice. And we need to have a faith in God that is preceded by our humility, but partnered with our hope that God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I don't know about you, but when God looks down at me, I hope sometimes he's a little awestruck. He's a little like, whoa. Not because of my fears, but because of my faith.